Elliot Goldstein is hosting a radio and podcast show out of New Mexico called NMDJ Presents Fly on the Wall. We are building a fresh, fabulous podcast library of musicians, writers, artists, and all good people of note, with many new and exciting guests to come. We are listener-funded. If you would like to assist our Venmo info is New Mexico DJ service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ service at gmail.com. We appreciate your help. We would like to thank Alan Gower for the intro music. Enjoyed the show. Welcome to New Mexico DJ Service Presents Fly on the Wall podcast with your host Elliot Goldstein. We are pleased to present Kenny Aronoff and Elliot discussing a wide variety of things from John Mellencamp to the Beatles and everything in between. What do John Mellencamp, Sir Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, The Rolling Stones, Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, Sting, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Seger, Dave Grohl, Elton John, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, John Bon Jovi, Steven Tyler, The Smashing Pumpkins, Meat Loaf, B.B. King, Rod Stewart, and John Fogerty have in common. All of these rock and roll superstars have performed with Kenny Aronoff as their drummer, keeping the beat in the studio or on the road. This podcast is listener-funded so if you wish to assist the Venmo info is New Mexico DJ Service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ Service at gmail.com. Any size contributions would be appreciated. Hi, Elliot. How you hey, doing? Hey, Hi. Damn. You look like you're looking for something. <laughs> so how you doing? I'm good, man. Always busy. Let me, let me, uh, okay. That should be better. Where are you located? I'm in New Mexico now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm a New Yorker, though. How about you? Uh, my, well, my, I got a lot of New York in me. My mom was from the Bronx. My dad was from Jersey. And uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, but spent 35 years in Indiana for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. And then um, now I'm in L.A. Well, okay. I'm in Studio City. How well, do you make a de- decision? What a show up. Do you have enough gold and silver and platinum up there? Dude, I got 1,300 of them. I know. I mean, I, know those are, I just but... didn't know where to put them, so I put them in my office and in my studio, and it's, but most of them are boxed up. So before I forget, Ed Man sends his love and regards. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he told me that you guys were, um, you went to school together. Yeah, he was two and, years younger, but yeah, it's just weird. Like he was super, super talented. He was involved with the music program. I was a jock, right. and I was playing in the coolest bands in the area. That's what he said. Yeah, and the wild thing is, here's a, it's just a great example how, I mean, he got anybody who, you know gets in the Zappa band is big. Yeah, and then so it just shows you. It's like it's not just all talent that gets you. Where you go, it's like, uh, and I speak about this when I give my uh, motivational speaking. 
uh, when I when I do these uh, for corporations, because you see, take a guy like me that let's just say he was more talented in some ways, but I took what I have and just turned into Tom Brady. You know, <laughs> you know, four decades of of uh, success in this business is unheard of. It's unheard of, yeah. yeah. In fact, um, there's only a handful of guys still on their feet doing it. Well, the thing is to stay relevant, to be relevant and stay relevant. I mean, to be become relevant or become successful is one thing. To stay successful in any business is uh, is a is a whole nother ball game, and it's way more than just talent. It's a it's a whole bunch of things. I mean, you've got to be uh, prepared mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually before you even enter a studio or go on tour. Uh, just like a Tom Brady, you know, before he even walks on the field, he's done so much preparation, which I'm that guy. But your skill set to, you know, how to connect with people and communicate so that you can collaborate. He's a genius at that. Tom Brady is very team-like, very uh, serving. He makes the other people on his team play better than they would normally play because as a leader like him, he has a lot of power to influence the vibe of the whole team, the, it, the ripple effect of his, his that that part of him is huge on the team. And I've seen uh, running backs interviewed. They said I I play better around him. He sees he he, he the running back said he I see other people play better around him, and he exudes the kind of teamwork that you need to win Super Bowls. And so that's that component. But then his ability. To adapt, I call it adapt or die. When that ball is hiked, you know, you don't know. The, the, the defenses are trying to disguise you. He doesn't know what the fuck's coming at him. But his ability to accept adversity, no matter how much he's prepared. See, you become a perfectionist at preparation because you don't want things to go wrong. But the next level is to accept when things go wrong because they're out of your control or you did something that created an event that didn't go the way you wanted it to. And the ability to keep that forward positive attitude and accept that's part of life. This skill is what makes Tom Brady exceptional. And those things I'm talking about are exactly what everybody could, should use in any field or in, in, in any business or any whether it's sports, music, or the corporate uh, world, or even a relationship, you know, these are skills that it's not just how talented you are by a long shot. That just gives you the possibility. You know, told me that too, um, Charlie Midnight. Yeah. He said, you know, it's uh, um, creativity. Um, he called it crap, C-R-A-P-P. Yeah. Creativity, uh, um, it's, you know, uh, yeah, it's, you know, yeah it's, it's the whole thing working with people uh, yeah. um, you know you know, having the attitude you know it's just um yeah and um you i mean your your beginning was with a uh, melon camp and you've taken that and ran with it into maybe i don't know how many artists have you worked with three thousand four thousand Maybe I I came in because you know I do all these big TV shows. Yeah, like, yeah. Know, the Johnny Cash tribute, the Doctor John tribute. Yeah. Way you know, in in those shows, I usually play with twenty twenty five artists. Yeah, and yeah, I've yeah. done so many. I'm the most viewed guy on Access TV. 
So, you know, I mean, it's, it's anything from Springsteen to Lady Gaga to Bruno Mars to Elton John to Don Henley yeah. to the Willie Nelsons to the all the country guys, Vince Gill, uh, uh, George Jones. Uh, and then then this, then in the live arena, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Bob Seger, you know, Chick Jagger, Detroit. Rolling Stones. Uh, yeah, and then there's the Stones, the Beatles. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then it's Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Wayne and Jennings. Then it's Tony Iommi from Sabbath. And, yeah. You know, you've touched on something where, you know, you're you're fortunate if you become a great drummer and get in a band like I did with Mellencamp. And I and you know, I'm reading his autobiography, which is awesome. Uh and he uh uh you know, it's a great way to go back and see where I fit in that whole thing. But the thing is is that when John decided to quit after uh-huh. eight years of traveling and we were I didn't realize that CAA was poising us to be a stadium tour act because we were so big Right. At the end of Jubilee, and we were in, in, in arenas, we could sell out two Madison Square Gardens, two L.A. forums. And I thought the tour just ended because it was time to end. No, John was burnt out. And the CAA agent was going, no, dude, you are like the biggest new thing in America. I mean, well, you were new with the American Fool, but now you are selling out arenas. We're ready to try you in stadiums. And I didn't know that. And when John quit, it was at the last gig. He was so frustrated. Back then, I took it real personal, you know, and I thought, this is horrible. I didn't realize he was so burnt out until I looked back and I realized, wow. Yeah, he was just fried. And the book, his autobiography talks about he really never, it wasn't natural for him to be out there like that. He likes to be more insulated with family. And he made this huge career, but he finally had had enough. But my the lesson and the gift from that was I realized the next day, holy shit, okay, I've been working with one artist for eight years. Now I'm going to work with all the other ones. And I never, ever wanted to be in that position again where one guy could dictate my income like that. And so that fueled me. And from that day on, right now, I'm triple booked in in 2022 on some days, and mm. you know with the COVID, oh yeah, yeah, I'm so booked it's it's insane. And I've got one person who's putting a huge retainer on me, and uh, I, I'm gonna have to let other people know. Hey man, I told you to put a retainer on me. You said we don't do that. And I went exactly. That's why I gotta take care of myself. And now somebody put a retainer on me, no. and so. But but it's amazing because you 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 work with the giants and yet you work with the um, not so giant like I told yeah. you um, the Native American artist you're right. on a you're on a loop in a hotel in New Mexico with this Native American cat yeah. and um, you know twenty four hours a day you're you're up there and the bottom line is you're the um, you're probably the biggest artist on that video. And you're holding mm-hmm. that band together, and you could tell that you're the guy keeping. Yeah, it and and that was the, why they had me come in. Yeah, because the people who it was a PBS special, and they knew, um, you know that. And for the people watching, this is Robert Mirabal. He's a Native yes, American Robert Indian, Mirabal. and he's uh, it was awesome for me. It's exciting because, um, uh, you know, as somebody said, they're watching TV. This is typically how it works. 
They're watching TV and they see this Native American Indian playing a powwow drum, then goes to Robert playing a flute. Then you have these different Indians and there's a cello player. And then, holy shit, this Kenny Aronoff. What is he doing? Kenny Aronoff. (laughs) Yep, that's exactly it. What? He's there also? Yep. Yep. I said, man, how'd that happen? And then, you know, but you could tell that you were the glue because. You know, oh, yeah. yeah, you could tell you were the guy running the show. So um, I understand, and I, I know this by looking at, I was checking out some of the YouTube videos that um, you, the way you work, everything is notation. You, um, Yeah, I'll show people right yeah. here. Um, I do this right now. I'm, I stupidly got convinced to do a New Year's Eve gig. So I have 22 songs to learn. I've heard them before, but I write every single note out. And the reason why I do that, that's what makes it possible for me to do, you know, shows like the Kennedy Center Honors or, you know, like you're honoring, you know, uh, you know, Merle Haggard. I got, you know, you know, Keith Richards up there. I've got Loretta Lynn. I've got all these world famous artists. And you're really rehearsing as many as eight of them the day of a 16 camera shoot. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they're filming and recording and you, you get done rehearsing 90 minutes before the show. And for, I write every note out. I write the count off, who to count off. Uh, the tempos are all locked in order on a drum machine. Uh, I rehearse the beginning and end of every song running into each other, checking the drum machine. Then I take pictures, put it in an iPad, and then I have everything in order. I have a foot switch that advances it. I pr- I practice advancing the, I mean, this is all like right before the show. And then usually I have 20 minutes to eat and get dressed and then do this three hour show. We, and I've been on the drum set since like 9.30 AM that day, but without having all that, you know, written out. I, I mean, I know what guitar players have to tune before I count it off. This is like for the Merle Haggerty, it was a 15 piece band. So I need to know when I'm going to count off, who to count off. And if they, two guitar players have to retune, I've got that written in. I've got a click going before every song. I got my hands up. I grab everybody's attention. If the stage manager says go, those two guys are still tuning. I don't go. If somebody's supposed to read a teleprompter and the teleprompter goes down, <clears throat> I look at the artist and I wait for that artist to cue me. Then I count off. It's literally running the show under the uh, the direction of the musical director, stage manager, and producer. That's why, partly why I get a lot of these calls because I can run a show. Now, when you write stuff down and you're in a rehearsal with Lady Gaga honoring uh, Springsteen, I mean Sting, at the Kennedy Center honor with the presidents and Sting up there in the balcony, you don't want to mess up. And so we, I learned the song. We get the songs a week before. Then we get in there. Then they've got new arrangements, and I'm adjusting those charts to my charts. You have to be able to read, by the way. If you don't read, you don't get the Kennedy Center Honors gig. Forget about it. Or any of these gigs, because you can't memorize that much material. And they're changing it. We learned it a certain way. Then Lady Gaga comes in. She changes it. Then we do a camera block the next day, changes it again. I'm rewriting in the night till 3 in the morning. And I'm rewriting up until the show. And that's why it's important for me to read. At the same time, I tap into sounding like I'm not reading 
like a street person, or just a guy in a band. So I don't sound, I have a, a lot of emotion and feeling and energy that affects the band. And so producers like uh, Don was said in my autobiography, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, that, yeah, I hire Kenny because he saves my sessions. He motivates the room, inspires people. So it's back to what I was saying at the beginning. It's more than just drumming. But that's a huge skill set for me. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And, um, you know, you know it, it's not an easy gig. People think, you know, you're a drummer. You sit down with two sticks and bang the skins. But obviously, um, you've taken it to a new level. Um you started out playing drums because of the Beatles. Yes. Okay. And um, a lot of people, uh, I think everybody I speak to have had them uh, in, in their life somewhere, some, yeah. some way, somehow. And you were lucky enough to have worked with two of them. Yes. Um, but let's go back. Um, I asked this to a lot of guys who are into the Beatles. Um, your uh, what Beatle album do you think is the one that did it for you later on in life after looking at the whole catalog? Which is oh. the one you zoom in on? Well, <clears throat> I'm I'm gonna call it a body of four. They recorded and did four albums in one year and eleven months. Uh-huh. And most bands do one album every two years. Yeah, yeah. Because you know you write the songs, you arrange the songs, you record the songs. Then you do marketing, then you rehearse for tour, and then you go on tour. Yeah, tour yeah. That's a two-year cycle. Yep. They did Rubber Soul, which was a huge departure from I, I Want to Hold Your Hand, you know, yeah. you know, or, you know, Twist and Shout, or, yeah. or uh, any of those little poppy songs yep. that they did that made them famous. All of a sudden, Rubber Soul was introspective, very influenced by Dylan and the acoustic. It was a, Paul McCartney was influenced heavily by this acoustic movement. Yeah, the birds. Uh, the birds. Yeah, and, and he brought it into the to the Beatles, and they did Rubber Souls with more introspective songs like Michelle. And um, then they come out with Revolver, which is completely different. Revolver is the one that did it for me. Yeah. I mean, they wrote songs and they were experimenting in the studio. You know, back then they, the, they would go into a studio and there were these engineers with lab coats, and, yeah. uh, and they would. They were only allowed to do, you know, I don't know, four hours and a cup of tea, then another four hours and goodbye. Well, they went, this is crazy. They took over the studio. They had this 24 hours a day. So they started experimenting with crazy stuff. You have to remember back then they had the first albums, I think, were on four track. I mean, that means everybody, you can, you have to record only on three tracks and leave one track open. So that means everything has to be perfect because then they bounce the three tracks. They basically record the, send the three tracks mixed together down to that one track. Now they've got two tracks to record on. And then they take what was bounced on that four track and these two tracks and they bounce it to the third track. Now they still got two tracks open. So when you're doing this process, you have to consider what you're doing because it's never good. You can't, uh, fix it. It's, it's it's permanent, and their vocals were impeccable. And all this technology that we have now, they didn't have back then. But what they they used what they had and created genius. And so anyway, after Revolver, they started experimenting. Then they really went heavy into experimenting. Sergeant Pepper's so much so that they couldn't tour. They could not reproduce what they did on the album. So I said, mm. and by the way, those first two albums, Rubber Soul and Revolver. They were touring. Yeah. 
I mean, they were making records and writing songs and touring. So after um, Sgt. Peppers, which was, now you're into this concept album where it's not individual songs that kind of run into each other. The whole album is a big movie, one big song. And then finally, Magical Mystery Tour, which was even more so that. And this is genius, you guys. 48 songs on four records. All of them got played on the radio. You're lucky if you get one song played on the radio. Now, granted, it was different times. But the point is, they got 48 songs on four albums played. People were willing to follow them on their journey. It's, I mean, every album is different. It's like four different bands. People were willing to take drugs with them, to hallucinate with them. Every album became a greatest hits album, if you look at it that way. Yeah. It was scary. It, it actually was mind-boggling. I think Robus Soul is brilliant, but I think Revolver. I think Revolver is the one where they kind of said, "You know what? There's no rules anymore." Yeah, they weren't just. They felt like they could do whatever they want. They let creativity and innovation yeah. lead them wherever they want. The, the you know the universe was theirs, as opposed to when you're trying to make it. You know, I'm sure they had Epstein and anybody who was in a position of the music business saying, no, you got to have two and a half minute songs. Uh, No, uh, you know, whatever it was, they were being instructed. And as young kids, they were chasing after something. Also, everybody's chasing after something. They wanted to be on the radio. Once they had the formula, they stayed on it for a while. And then they felt, well, we can try some of our own stuff. And they, they, so like I said, you know, McCartney saw, this this new movement, and he wanted to be part of it. And now you um, you're, you're you're like a Beatle aficionado. I mean, you know you know a lot. I'll give you a little story. I don't know if you heard this one. We will be returning to the show in just a moment. Please remember that this podcast is listener funded. So if you wish to assist, the Venmo info is New Mexico DJ Service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ Service at Gmail any size contributions would be appreciated. Hey guys, thank you for listening to Fly on the Wall podcast. I'd like to tell you how I got started. Um, I really had no idea on um, the beginnings of what had even where to start. And I stumbled upon Anchor by Spotify. And it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. And I'll explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And um, when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast automatically on listening platforms. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Apple Podcasts. I'm on other uh, platforms. And Anchor made it so simple. And um, it's all in one place. Everything you need to make a podcast, you can find in one place. And um, the amazing part is it's all free. So um, there is no uh, downside to any of this. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R. And again, it's the Anchor app or go anchor.fm. And it's real easy to get started. And um, thank you for listening to Fly on the Wall and uh, back to the show. Um, Jeff Emmerich told the story to John Altman. Um, his job when he first got to, um, to, to you know, to uh, um, EMI, Abbey Road, was um, he backed up the Beatles' masters every night. He had to uh, make a, a tape copy, you know, like a safety copy, 
Well, anyway, one day he runs out of tape. So he runs over, can't find a store open to buy tape. He runs into like a Woolworths type store and he buys what? a he buys a dollar. He said it was like under a pound. A, a reel to reel. Like, you know, fifty cents, sixty cents. And he buys a handful of them and he goes back and records everything. He comes into the studio the next day and all the big shots are standing there wanting to fire him. How dare you do this to our top commodity, the Beatles? You know, what were you thinking? And anyway, years go by, decades go by, and they're doing the anthology tapes, you know, the anthology albums. And um, they pull all the tapes out and they all have to be baked. Yeah, of you know, course. Except the Woolworth tapes. They were perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But they didn't have to be baked because they could still be played, right? Yeah. They were perfect. So, there you go. Great story. Yeah. There's, there's one for you. And um, so, um, what do you do on New Year's Eve? Who are you working with? Uh, it's a ba- as a matter of fact, it ties in the Beatles. There's a band called the Tearaways. All, all the guys have different jobs, but every year they would go to Liverpool pool and play at the Cavern or somewhere there honoring the Beatles. So we do a lot of Beatles, Stones, uh, you know, some Cars, uh, and uh, stuff. A lot of stuff from that period, you know, 60s, 70s, except obviously the Cars. We do some Tom Petty, and they're just I, you know, see, as a little Young kid, you always say yes. And as an adult, I have to really fight hard not to say yes. Because I was just in a good mood. I said, sure, that sounds like fun. Meanwhile, like Tom Brady, I'm preparing. I've I've written 12 charts. I have like eight to do go. And, you know, on Christmas Eve, I was in my studio practicing, uh, you know, trying to, you know, you got to, and tonight I'll, uh, I'll get the other eight written a day. I'll go and practice those tonight. So I'll practice all 22 songs. Tomorrow I have a rehearsal and I'll continue to practice till, Chris, till New Year's Eve. Then I can just perform. Okay. That's the whole idea is to practice so that you can then perform and be in what I call a flow state. I mean, I'm reading, but I'm really letting it flow. I understand, you know, the, the dynamics and um, tempos and everything of each song as much as possible. Now, um, after the new year, what are your plans? Are you I, have a, I have a speaking gig in Denver on the 18th. I have recording sessions in my studio. I have a studio, uh, Uncommon Studios LA, where people send me music and I record drums. So I've got sessions immediately. Uh, I'll be working on just bringing my speech back up on the 18th. I've got right after that, it's well, technically, I'm supposed to do I have a band called Supersonic Blues Machine. Yeah. I'm supposed, supposed to have two shows. Um, in L.A. area, but the lead singer lives in England, lead singer, guitar player. So we're not sure it's going to happen because of Omicron, no. and he might be locked down in England, and also he's got the COVID right now. So if those, if that doesn't, if it does happen, I'll start practicing. Well, I'll have a lot of preparation, then we'll start rehearsing, you know, around 11, 12, 13, shows 15, 16. Then I go to Denver. Uh, and then I do my show there, my speaking event there. Then I come home for one day, I think. And then I, oh no, I, then I have a, a three shows with John Fogarty in out California. Then I fly to Chicago to record 
for two or three days. Then I go up to Michigan, do another speech. Uh, then there may be another gig in there somewhere uh, with that band that's got me on retainer. Then uh, that takes me to February. Then February, I have a residency at the end of February with John Fogarty in Vegas and the beginning of March. I've got another speaking gig in Orlando uh, the night before the Super Bowl. Uh, I've got more sessions and uh, there's other stuff. Oh, and possibly another speak. Oh, that's February. March, I have another speaking, two speaking gigs. And I have, I think, more Fogarty. Meanwhile, I may, there's a possibility I'll be on tour with Joe Satriani uh, for nine weeks in Europe. Uh, that we have to rehearse for, uh, you know, it's just, it's endless. Plus, oh. I've got a, a new a wine coming out, the first of uh, three wines a year, Uncommon Wines. That's my studio, Uncommon Studios. Right, Uncommon, yeah. and it's going to be very, very, very cool. It's with a, oh, my God, the wine. It's a blend. It's very full and very, not very, it doesn't have a bite to it at all. It's the way I like it. Yeah, uh, yeah I got all kinds of stuff going on. Well, I got, well, I'm going to go, I got think I'm part of different men's groups and I'm going to, that, that inspire me to be a better person. And I, I will, you know, take a lot of what I learn in those groups and put that into my speaking. Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to go to Jersey and go into a think tank with uh, six brilliant guys and really come up with a, with a business that serves us and serves uh, people. Stuff like well, that. I'm I'm always looking for that. And how do you keep how do you keep your energy up? Well, I'm a, I'm a aside from drinking some wine, a little bit of bourbon. Uh, I'm pretty damn healthy. Uh, you know, I have a gym in my house. Uh-huh. I've always been into sports since I was a kid, and uh, you know, I have the eight steps to a healthy life. That, that roughly, it's you know, it's like lifting weights, which uh, builds up muscle mass, of course, but it keeps your immune system up. Uh, that's very, very important. Uh, cardio, the only way you can exercise the heart, which also keep your immune system up, which all, by the way, both those things elevate your hormone levels, which keep your immune system up. Then there's flexibility, stretching, yoga, whatever, uh, for diet, which I, it's a whole, I could take an hour on that, you know, eating properly. Um, uh, five is supplements. I take a lot of supplements, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many things. And some of the supplements I take are huge for the immune system. And uh, then uh, six is water, which I could do a little bit better at. Drink half the your body weight in ounces. Seven is uh, to release stress, which is one of the worst things in, in life. And that is uh, either meditation or breathing exercises or whatever it is that makes you de- de- decompress and get away from stress. And finally, what I'm not really good at <laughs> is sleep. Uh, I, I wake up after three and a half, four hours, but I try to keep going back to sleep until I've acquired seven hours. That's the only time your brain can, uh, uh, your brain and body can uh, regroup and heal itself or repair itself. And your brain, that's where it remembers everything you did and files it. Okay. Well, you have it down to a science. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you something funny. Um, I, <laughs> Um, you're talking about meditation and stuff. I actually um, chant with Jerry Germott. You know Jerry, the bass player. Oh yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Me and Jerry chant together. Um, we do it on Zoom. You know, it's like uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll get together once or twice every couple of weeks. But, you know, we, I chant on my own too, but I'll, he'll, he'll kind of, um, he's like my sensei. He guides me through it. And, um, is this uh, what kind of ch- is it? Uh, Buddhist chant? Yeah, it's a Buddhist chant. It's oh a, yeah, I yeah. Was, did that for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all good. It's very, it, is, it is. It is just to uh, shut down for a bit, you know. And that's what you need. You need to unplug. So, um, how long have you been with Fogarty? Really, I've been with him. It might be since nineteen ninety five was when I started recording Blue Moon Swap. Uh-huh. I've left, I went off to did the pumpkin store right. and I've left to do other things, but basically on and off 29 years, that, no, not 29, that would be 27. Yeah, something like that. Seven. Okay. And you played, you played New Mexico with him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at the, uh, I used to manage that facility, um, the, yeah. um, the uh, uh, journal pavilion. Yes, absolutely. And, I think we've been, to, well, I think we've played in New Mexico three times. Yeah, yeah, you, I, you were out here. You were out here with uh, um, Billy Nelson. Yep. And yep. But, but uh, John, I think three times. Yeah, yeah. I think you were out here with Dylan once. Dylan, I wasn't on okay. tour with Dylan. But okay. uh, Melissa Etheridge, and she used to have a okay. house in Taos. Right. So Melissa Etheridge for sure. Yep. Yep. And you were out here with the Fogarty with um, yep. uh, Nelson. I remember. Yeah, seeing you guys there and. Um, you did the pumpkins. I mean, you've worked with everybody. You've, you've worked with the Indigo Girls. I mean, just yeah. there. Yeah. How yeah. was that? Uh, it was great. I was the yeah. first. I was the first drummer on their records. Yeah. Now that that was an incredible time. So, and this is what I'm. It's like I'm a guy who works for multiple corporations. That's okay. why it's so important to be able to connect, communicate, and collaborate with people, uh-huh. or connect and communicate, so that you can collaborate. I mean, how are you going to make music if you don't get along with anybody, if you don't have a relationship? Right. And you have to establish that very quickly. So here's the scenario. Monday, this is in the 90s. I'm recording with Bonnie Raitt and B.B. King. It's a whole, that's what that is. That's amazing. Don was on bass, the producer. Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm with Elton John. That was, that was the um, producer's album? The 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 Elton John was his box set. No, 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 no. I'm talking about uh, Bonnie Raitt and BB. That was uh, for Air America. It was a song, a Dr. John song. Okay. Must have been the right place. Must have been the wrong time. Okay. Um, and that was for just a, a movie soundtrack. Okay. Then Thursday, and then Don was did uh, that also. Elton John. Then I did uh, Bob Seger for four days. That was with Don was also. So wow. I did a Bob Seger record Thursday to Sunday. Then I flew to a, a Athens, Georgia, and did the Indigo Girls with Scott Litt, a completely different environment. Yeah. Complete, they'd never had a, a, a drummer on their album before. Uh, and I did, I think, two or three albums. Then after a week with them, and how was that? That was, that was cool. But I was work, walking into their world, stepping into their environment. Uh, as I did with Elton John, but more with them because you're in Athens. You're not in L.A. You're in their hometown. And I think I was we were recording it in one of R.E.M.'s musicians' studio. It might have been Peter Buck's studio. I can't okay. remember. Okay. Then we flew back to L.A. and went right to, into the studio when I landed with Willie Nelson. Four more days with Seeger and, <laughs> and then two more then two weeks with a different producer, with uh, John Bon Jovi recording Blaze of Glory for Young Guns 2. So every one of those artists is 
completely different, different engineers, different musicians, different everything. And so the ability to adapt is huge. Well, and how do you do it? I mean, it's um, because I'm sure Elton John's recording is on such a bigger planet than the Indigo Girls. You know, it just takes up so much more room, you know, a lot more real estate, you know, so to speak. How do you get a mindset where you could go from here to here? Well, the main thing is it's not about me. It's mm-hmm. about them. It's about the song, most important. It's the purpose of me, the way I look at it, and I didn't realize it back then, mm-hmm. but I, I realize it now. The purpose of a session drummer is to get that song on the radio to be a number one hit. Okay. So it was. it's all about what can I do to help them get that song on the record that might be a hit on the radio. And it goes deeper than that. So, for, well, first of all, so my... I naturally get along with people. So my ability to connect with these people, but still be myself, but looking for some way that I can make them feel comfortable, try to please them so that they can be themselves and get this relationship so that they feel like they can tell me what they want. Because ultimately I want them to be happy. I'm in the service business. So that's very important for me to understand that, especially now I could be going to, you know, somebody, you know, comes into my studio and they they don't even have a record deal. I could kind of have an ego, but I don't. I realize that even no matter who these people are, they're hiring me to make their music better. So, and it makes them feel really like I'm doing my job, let's say, if I make them happy, make them feel comfortable, uh, uh, which creates an environment for creativity and, and good music, you know? So that's a big part of it. It's just to, to know how, know who you're working with and figure out how far to go, figure out, I'm trying to figure out what they want and give it to them. Okay. I guess I have to ask this question. Who were your, um, outside of Ringo Starr, who were your, um, Mentors, who are the guys that you followed? Well, uh, Mitch Mitchell was a huge influence because I grew up playing jazz and he was a jazz drummer playing rock. And that's right. what I became. So I really relate to him and he improvised a lot. And I was lucky, fortunate to go on the Experience Hendrix tour right. with, with this power trio, uh, Joe Satriani, me, and Doug Pinnock from King's X. Mm-hmm. And we did most of the material we did was all, well, all the material we did was from the first two records, which meant Mitch Mitchell was the drummer. So Mitch Mitchell, and then of course, John Bonham became, you know, eventually he became my, if I had to pick one rock drummer that kind of does it all the way he's supposed to do it, it's John Bonham. But, you know, Keith Moon influenced me, Ginger Baker, a lot of the jazz drummers, because when I was a kid, that's what was on my parents' turntable. So Buddy Rich, Alvin Jones, Philly Joe Jones, Gene Krupa, Louis Belson, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? The drummer for Dave Brubeck, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, it, yeah, what's um, his name? Uh, a, amazing, you know. And mm-hmm. I saw these all these drummers as a kid because my parents would take me to concerts. Okay. And then you know guys like Billy Cobham showed up, which were like badass fusion drummers that came out of the jazz scene and had massive amounts of technique and ambidextrous and and physically was very powerful, extremely fast. Uh, you know, and he changed drumming. Uh, then there was guys like Steve Gadd who played on, you know, his fam- one of his most famous 
recordings is the song Asia on Steely yeah, Dan. Yeah. One take, you know. Yeah. Uh, just one complete take. His, his stuff, the work he did with stuff was incredible, too. Incredible. You know, these guys changed the face of drumming, you know. Um, but there's so many great drummers. I mean, so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm planning on doing a series on drummers. I'd like to invite you to that, too. Uh, we're going to be doing a roundtable. I spoke to Carmine Aptesee not too long ago, and he told me that John Bonham copied his drum kit. Well, I, I believe so because uh, actually, you know, I believe so because I saw, I did some research on that, and I saw, well, first of all, Vanilla Fudge was very big in America, and, yeah. and Zeppelin came and opened up for them. Right. And apparently John Bonham had a small, more R&B type kit. Yeah. That makes sense because he was very into R and B, but uh, Carmine had big, huge drums. Yeah, he and, said that the and, bass drum is what folded. Yeah, like huge. So uh, Bonham saw that, and I think that makes sense. And also, I saw Carmine uh, with Vanilla Fudge on uh, some TV show before Zeppelin came out with their first record, and Carmine was not only playing this big kit. Uh, but there was a whole bunch of fills because Carmine will say John Bonham picked up some of his fills. And a lot of people go, you know, that's so egotistical, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you know what? I saw. He did. he did. I saw at the end of a song that Vanilla Fudge did. And he's doing these type of, you know, that's exactly what John Bonham did at the end of rock and roll. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's yeah. it's true, man. It's really true, you know. Well, what do they say? Geniuses will know who to steal from, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh God, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know. So, um, well, so you're pretty much set. So when you do your motiv- you, you do motivational speaking, right? Yeah, I have an agent, and I spent uh, many many years, five years, investing in myself and learning, putting a show together. I got two computers. I played the, the tracks. I've got a big video that opens up. It shows, you know, that I've played with everybody. It's ridiculous. And then um, uh, and then my, my, my speech focuses on teamwork, which is so obvious, you know, you know ben, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a team. But I talk about teams that teams win Super Bowls and World Series and NBA playoffs and Stanley Cups, not individuals. But I tell people we should strive to be the MVP on whatever team we're on, but it's for the team not the individual. And I talk about innovation, creativity, adapt or die, as I mentioned. And the big nugget is to realize if I could, I would do this, but you can't really swear at these things. You know, I don't want to offend somebody who's right. would be, offended. but I'd love to come out and say, what the fuck are you doing with your life? I would love that to be, I'd love that to be my opening line. What the fuck are you doing? You moderate. Yeah. That could be your catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so uh, but that's uh, basically, you know, when I saw the Beatles and the Ed Sullivan show 10 years old, I didn't know what purpose or any of that shit meant. All I knew is when I saw him, I was like, it hit me in the gut. I was so excited. I was bouncing off the walls, you know, and I didn't know who they were, where they were from. I didn't know nothing. I actually asked my mom, who are they? She said, they're the Beatles. She said, well, I want to play in the Beatles. Tell them, call them up and tell them I want to play with them and I want to play drums. Yeah. And in my story, You'll see me making decisions. I mean, I, I went to college and studied classical music for five years, four of which were the number one school of music by far, hands down, 
the Indiana University School of Music in Bloomington. It's the biggest campus of music. Hardcore classical, though. It's not a rock school. It's There's no hand-holding. My teacher is the type of teacher. You don't show up prepared. You get your ass thrown out of the, out of the lesson, and you get an F. And I saw people trying as hard as they could. They still left nervous breakdowns, whatever. I saw people freak. And, but that's, he was training us to be what was going to happen in the real world. You know, but back then there was no entitlement, laziness. You know, people don't get trophies just for showing up. No, this guy taught us to be, and look where that's done for me. You know, yeah. it's made me, you know, you start to, anyway. So I eventually get into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra, which is a huge honor, and I turned it down because I followed my heart, my purpose, my desire, my truth, my passion. I talk about that stuff. And the stories I have are great rock and roll stories, but the meaning behind them are huge. Okay. Yeah. What what are some of your um, go to stories like in the rock and roll field? You've worked with everybody. You must have some great. Uh... Well, here's a go to story. So you know, I graduated Indiana University with honors. I played a violin concerto, of a virtuoso violin concerto on marimba. It's one of my four pieces in my senior recital. Spent three hours a day for 365 days working on it, studying listening to Itzhak Perlman, the great Israeli uh, violinist who I was mimicking. Uh, I did that. I, I got into Tangwood after four auditions, four years of audition, the number one student orchestra in the country run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And I got to work with Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, Arthur Fiedler. This orchestra is so badass. You, they only take seven percussions in the whole world. And this this orchestra I was in could have been its own orchestra. Anyway, the point is I I I I I never gave up. I did it four years in a row. I auditioned and I finally got in. And then so I did everything, you know. And by the way, that 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 violin concerto I did in remember, I entered a concerto competition and played a con- like a violin concerto. I remember with a sixty piece orchestra in an opera hall bigger than the New York Met. I mean, this is not typical of a kid who was self-taught that, you know, I went from shit to Shinola real fast in five years. Turned down the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. Why? Because I was following my dream, my purpose. I turned down certainty for uncertainty. I turned down certainty, a paycheck, a gig. There aren't that many orchestras for complete uncertainty. Went back home with my tail between my legs and said, holy shit. Now I want to get into rock and roll. I didn't know who to call. Who do you call to become a rock star? It's not like you get a degree in medicine and you're a doctor. I mean, you get a degree in music and you get a degree in music. Now what? So I spent four years trying to make it in a band. Eventually, I get into the Mellencamp band. And after five weeks, we're in the studio in L.A. I told everybody I finally made it. This is my dream. This is what I'm supposed to be. And I get fired. I mean, most people know the story. I get fired from the record. <clears throat> pivotal moment, just like turning down Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. When John said, you go home, you're not playing on the record, I said, no fucking way. I said, I'm not going home. I mean, the band, their eyes were bugged out. It's like me trying to fire you, and you say, no, I'm not fired. I'm like, you're fired. You go, no, I'm not fired. I'm like, hey, listen, dude, Elliot, what don't you understand about the words, you are fucking fired? 
And that's what I was telling John Mellencamp. <laughs> and I find I, in, in, because he was trying to take away my purpose. I didn't know that at the time, but I was ashamed. I felt like a loser. I felt saddened. I felt like, like, like overwhelmed, freaked out, fear. And I just wasn't going to go home. So I thought this was it. This is it. And do or die. And so I said, am I still your drummer? And he looked at me and went, uh, well, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. Well, and then I scrambled and said, look, I want to stay here. I'm going to watch these other drummers play my parts on your record and I'll get better. I'll learn from them. And that's good for you. He didn't say shit. I went, Oh fuck. All right. You don't have to pay me. I'll sleep on the couch. And he went perfect. And so it was embarrassing. It was horrible. I felt like an outcast, but I did learn. And that's where I learned, dude, it's not about you. It's what you can do to make his songs better. Serve the artists, serve the producers, serve the record company, serve the musicians. And the next level was I learned how to get other people to play better so the song would get on the record that would get on the radio. And then two years later, you know, I'm making the most difficult record in my life. Saw two guys get fired. I almost got in a fist fight with John. He was about to lose his record deal, going through a divorce, almost died, falling off a motorcycle at 80 miles an hour with no helmet, uh, bike crashing into a tree. And that's where I had to come up with the iconic drum solo on Jack and Diane mm. in fear of losing my gig and having to come with it on the spot. And I came up with that. And it's wow. one, of the most, one of the most powerful yeah. drum parts on pop radio. Yeah, and classic rock. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, that completely blew his career up and blew my career up. And, you know, basically, I made the company, John Mellencamp, millions and millions of dollars because that song became a number one hit. Yes, it did. And, now, and, 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 so it's not quitting. It's continuing. Just don't. Still played on the radio today. And it's like, I mean, what a blessing, you know, no. that I got. Who would have known? But I had to come up with those parts on the spot with a lot of pressure on me and the fear of being fired again. It's funny because a lot of musicians I speak to, they didn't give up. Um, I spoke to, you know, the California guitar trio. No. Okay. They're like a King Crimson, uh, offshoot. Oh, kind of. cool. Anyway, they are three acoustic guitar plays that Robert Fripp hand taught how to play wow. pretty much. So anyway, I spoke to Bert Lambs, one of the guys a couple of weeks ago. And he said to me, he went to the, mm -hmm. in Belgium, he went to the conservatory of music there for his audition. Oh, cool. And they said to him, um, I, his, the guy, who uh, uh, tested him said, I think you'd be making more money if you opened up a um, French fry stand. <laughs> so, what did, what, yeah. So he went in, he, he took two, mm -hmm. two years of intense eight hour a day training and lessons. And he went back and he got the gig and, you know, whatever, you mm -hmm. know, well, that's the thing. See, that, that's a pivotal moment. It's not, it's good that that guy said that to him. Yeah. Because if 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 uh, he didn't want to work eight hours a day and come back, then he shouldn't be in the music business anyway. Exactly. So that guy helped him realize what he should do. But how many musicians take the um, take the flip coin to what you've done? And the company owes me money. The record company, you know, uh, the record company screwed me. This guy screwed me. That guy screwed me. This guy did this. This guy did that. You don't have that attitude, dude. Shit happens. Yeah. Listen. If I'm a running back in football and somebody does a low tackle and breaks my leg, that's football. 
That's life. I come back the next year and score more touchdowns. Do I score a touchdown every time I get the ball? Hell no. But I spend my rest of my life trying, as long as I'm in football, trying to get in the end zone. It just is what it is. Now, when I was younger, I was freaked out. Man, that's not fair. And now it's like, dude, it's like Tom Brady gets the ball. He read the defense wrong. Some guy comes in, tackles him, breaks a rib. You just keep going. Do you want to cry and stop? Or you just you, you realize that's what comes with playing football. In life, things don't work out always the way you want them. It's like, look at our friend Ed Mann. He's, you know, he's had, you know, broke his shoulder or whatever. You told me that this shit happens, you know. And so I just accept that as part of life. You just keep moving forward. I have a phrase that goes, I'll never be as great as I want to be. But I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. That's like a running back in football. Just keep trying one foot at a time. Yeah. If you do, if you do nothing, you get nothing. Right. You do nothing, you get nothing. So if somebody feels entitled and is waiting for shit to happen, and I, it's people like me that are going to take your what you're waiting for because I'm going after it. It's not malicious. So I don't believe. In laziness or entitlement, every so often we're gifted with something, but most of the time you have to fight. I don't care at what level in society you're at, you have to fight as hard as you can. And what you get out of that is incredible experience in life. You, the life lessons are so heavy that, you know, will empower you and give you, you know, value in this life. Not everybody's going to be rich and famous. But there's value at so many things that have nothing to do with money. Well, you know, people say to me, how did you get to talk to uh, Kenny Aronoff? And I told everybody, I contacted him and you agreed to it. <laughs> if you didn't contact him, he wouldn't have yeah. said yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and what do they say? The luckiest people are the guys who work the hardest? Right? It's not luck. It's not luck. You know, uh, yeah, at this point where I'm at, it's like if something, I don't believe in mistakes or failures. I won't use those words. Right. Because when you say mistake, failure, you can get, you get sick in your stomach. It creates a negative response in contrast to, God damn, I love this. I love that. I love trying to do this. I love, it's more upbeat, it's more positive. You know, it's just a different, gives you literally a different physical feeling. So, Instead of the word mistake or failure, you just say those are events that are helping making you get better and have a and, and learn in life. You got to pick your ass up off the floor when you fall, right? I also don't look for. I'm uh, you know, as a child, you look for um, what's the word I'm looking for? You you look for um, scapegoat being acknowledged. Being no, yeah. you look for. Uh, Praise, you know, praise, praise, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in, in, as an adult, I try to do, you know, you know, do that to myself and not look for it from other people. Okay, tell me some of those little albums you have behind you. Probably a lot of Mellencamp, Bob Seger, Meatloaf. I'll do anything for love. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Bad out of hell. There's, uh, uh, I think, John Bon Jovi. There's probably Melissa Etheridge, Michelle Branch, Celine Dion. Fuck that. Um, yeah, yeah wow. that's. Yeah, so many. Uh, what else? Well, There's a lot. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Mick Jagger, right? You got yeah, Jagger. Mick Jagger. That's that. That's in my studio. 
Okay. Uh, uh, Mick Jagger, and then also signed a, a message on the the gold record. Yeah. You know, nice. Really Beautiful. Cool. Wow. Yeah. Incredible stuff. So, um, what do you say we get together again? The end of January or something? When what? The end of January. You gonna have time to talk to me again? Oh yeah, sure. Well, end of January would have to be maybe the beginning, like January thirtieth. I think I fly home. Okay. Just reach, reach out to me and and and, we'll, and I'll do it again. Yeah, I had I had a great time talking to you today. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, c- cool, man. Well, yeah. um, I'll let you know. Well, I'll let you know a little secret. I got the White Album from my bar mitzvah from a friend of mine. Oh that's, my god, that's how far back I go with the Beatles. <laughs> Dude, I, I, I think on my bar mitzvah I got a floor tom. A floor tom, nice. Because my parents couldn't buy a whole, and they got it at Manny's. Manny's, sure. Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I got a piano somewhere along the line, but uh, yeah. one of my friends got me the White Album for my bar mitzvah. Best Dude. gift I ever got. <laughs> Dude, yeah, yep. Okay, well, all listen. right, man. Very nice uh, meeting you, man. You Very too, cool. my friend. Stay safe and uh, take care yeah. of yourself, and have some great shows and. Uh, yep. I'll talk to you real soon. All right, man. Take care. Be good, Ken. Yeah, see you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to New Mexico DJ Service Presents Fly on the Wall podcast with Elliot Goldstein. This podcast is listener-funded, so if you wish to assist, the Venmo info is New Mexico DJ Service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ Service at gmail.com. Any size contributions would be appreciated. Please tell your friends about the show. The more the merrier. Please play nice with one another. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Fly on the Wall. There are more great interviews to follow so please list us as one of your favorites and be sure to follow. We are listener funded. If you would like to assist our Venmo info is New Mexico DJ service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ service at gmail.com. Please remember to share our info. Thanking you all.